chapter 1. Our considerations of the individuals that are connected with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. We come this morning to Joseph, the husband of Mary. Like Mary, Joseph was chosen by God to take part in his eternal plan of salvation. Joseph, we're told, according to Luke chapter 2 and verse 4, was of the house and lineage of David. This genealogy and this lineage established Jesus' legal line, the royal line, to the throne of, of David. Uh, you'll recall that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 through 16, God made a covenant with David. And in that covenant, God said that he would raise up one of his descendants, one of his sons, to sit on a throne that would be established and that would have an eternal reign and an eternal kingdom and an eternal rule. Uh, we, we see this also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 where it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch uh, will bear fruit. And then the prophet goes on to say, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear uh, of the Lord. And this uh, prophecy spoken by Isaiah some 700 years before the time of Christ is in fact fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ whom the Bible declares God gave him the Spirit without measure. He had the Holy Spirit in fullness upon him to accomplish God's purposes. In fact, if you look at Joseph's genealogy, and that's what you have in Matthew chapter 1, you'll note that Matthew opens his gospel by saying, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he mentions David because he's part of that royal line. He mentions Abraham because that is the nation from which he would come. He was Jewish. And you'll notice that in verse 6, as, as Matthew relates all the different descendants from Abraham, he comes to David. And then as he continues on from David all the way through the, to the Babylonian captivity and beyond, verse 12, he then comes down in verse 16 to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, the Messiah. It's kind of interesting that in that verse 16, Joseph is identified as the husband of Mary. 
and then it's Mary of whom was born Jesus. And the interesting thing is that the, the Greek word of whom is a feminine singular word which means that he came from Mary but not from Joseph. And that is certainly consistent with the testimony of Scripture. You see, God made a covenant with David that is fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. And the genealogy given by Matthew shows Joseph's line. And if you look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, you have Mary's line uh, and lineage. And Joseph then, by the testimony of Scripture, would be considered the adoptive father of Jesus, being the husband of Mary. See, the Bible tells us in this context, and as well as in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived not because Mary had relations with any man, but because the Holy Spirit produced within her the child in the womb, Jesus. In fact, keep your finger there in uh, Matthew's Gospel and turn again just to Luke chapter 1 for a moment because I want you to see again and, and have this in your minds and in your hearts lest someone try to teach you otherwise that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You'll note in verse 26, after the angel had appeared to Mary, she asked the question, verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel gives the response to Mary, how are you going to have this child? How will he be in fact, verse 32, the son of the Most High, verse 35, the Son of God? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And we saw last time, verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. It's important that we understand uh, the coming of Jesus Christ into this world, that in fact he was born of the Virgin Mary. Thus Jesus was not the son of Joseph, but as I've, I've said several times now, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now Mary received that news, though she didn't understand everything that that would, it would mean for her. She was engaged to Joseph to be married. How would Joseph respond when he hears this news? that Mary is with child. How's he going to react? Well, we're told here in Matthew's Gospel exactly how he responded to what Mary told him. Verse 18 says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And it seems like the, the, the writers of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit want to emphasize that fact to us, both in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke, 
but also what was prophesied long ago from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they'll call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. The text tells us here that uh, while they were in this engagement period, Mary was found to be with child. Now, verse 19 tells us something significant about this man, Joseph, who is pledged to be her husband. Uh, one of the things that we have to understand is that the engagement in the Jewish culture was such that, that to be engaged was be, to be considered almost married. Um, it, it, was a, it was a formal ceremony that took place in that engagement. Uh, and that's why he's referred to, even though they hadn't been wed yet, that Joseph was her husband at this point. But notice what verse 19 tells us. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. He was a, a just man. He was a godly man. And he was trying to, to consider what he should do in this circumstance, considering that in our modern terms, his fiancée was with child. What would he do? Verse 19 says he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. Uh, he didn't want to humiliate her publicly or even put her even maybe before the authorities for questioning uh, and cause disgrace to her and to her family and to her family's name. And so it was his intention at this point to... Uh, divorce her quietly, to break that, that, that marriage covenant that was already in process and to put her away. That's what he saw as the best possible solution at this point, not wanting to subject her to shame uh, or to judgment. Now, verse 20 tells us, uh, but after he considered this, I think it's interesting that Joseph doesn't immediately react. Uh, he spent time thinking about this, and no doubt he probably was spending time in prayer, being a godly, righteous man. He was not rash. He was not angry. He was not vindictive. Let me ask you this just on the side as I thought about this. How would you and I respond to circumstances that come up in our lives that we don't understand? That did in Joseph's life. Do we turn to God? Do we seek him in prayer? Do we immediately react and want to fix things? Or do we really come before God and wait upon him? I would suggest to you that Joseph, being this righteous man, must have asked God for help and for direction in this. And God, being God who hears and answers prayer, responded. And you know, you and I in our lives, if we're lacking wisdom, if we're lacking understanding, if we're wanting direction that is right and godly and good, we can go to God in prayer and he will hear us when we pray and he will answer. When you pray, though, you should expect God to give you that answer in that direction. And Joseph, God spoke to him, and God sent him an angel, and, and God did that through a dream, as we're told in verse 20. 
And this angel communicated to Joseph in this dream in such a way that he knew that this was from God. This was not his imagination. This wasn't something that, that he was just, uh, he ate something he shouldn't before he went to bed and was having a nightmare. You know, this was an angel from the Lord and it was clear. Maybe it was even Gabriel, the same one that came to Mary in Luke chapter 1. But the angel gives him this message from God, Joseph, son of David. And you see how that emphasis again is on, David, on Jesus being a son of David. Why? Because God made promises concerning a king and a kingdom that would come. And this is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he says here, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. You're considering doing these things, but this is the direction that God is giving to you. Don't be afraid. Yes, Lord, but I have a lot of questions. Some that I don't have the answers to, and I'd like the answers to, and I wish I could figure it out. God says, don't be afraid. I think I said this in a message quite a while back, that I've heard it said that in the Bible that every time that people are fearful, that God has responded to them, do not be afraid. And in fact, uh, someone has suggested that there's 365 times that that appears in the Bible. I'm still trying to figure that one out. I keep going to the different version. Depending on the versions that you, you read, of the different phrase, do not be afraid, and you put them all together, I'm sure that there's 365 there. I just haven't been able to calculate them all and put them into a list. Maybe someday you can help me with that project. But God says to him, don't be afraid. Why? Because this is God's work. This is God's doing. And in fact, he makes it very clear because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I'm... I'm certain, though the Bible doesn't tell us this, that Mary probably told him exactly what the angel said to her, that I'm going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now God confirms that through the message through the angel. And I want you to understand that God always confirms his work. And God is always consistent with himself. He's never contradictory. He's always going to be consistent with who he reveals himself to be in his word. He's not going to go contrary to that, whether that's in my individual life or yours or anything that we read in Scripture. God is always consistent with himself. And he confirms to Joseph that this child in the womb of Mary is not because she had an immoral relationship with someone else, but is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit within her. Now notice this, and I think this is one of the key verses of, of the Christmas celebration. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Let me just note here for us here, the angel says she's going to give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Did you know that in the culture of that day, it was the father who named the child uh, at the time of the child's uh, circumcision, his presentation? Um, 
you are to give him the name Jesus. That would indicate that Joseph was to take full responsibility for this child as his own because it was the father who named the son. But you see, God the Father says, this is what you are to call my son, whom Mary will bear. And then he will give him the name Jesus. And the name Jesus means the Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. And his name is more than just an identification, but it is an indication of his total being, his total person, his total character. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. See, the scriptures indicate that the problem with you and me and all of humanity is that our sin, our failure to, to live out the, the commandments of God, the will of God is, is sin. It's the missing of the mark. It's the falling short of what God expects of us as his creatures. And sin separates us from God. Sin separates all humanity from a holy God. And it only separates us, but it invites uh, his judgment. And God says to, to Joseph and to you and to me this morning that the one who was born uh, through Mary was to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And you see, Jesus came into this world to be our Savior and to be our Lord, to save us from that which we cannot save ourselves. You know, Romans chapter 3 is an interesting portion uh, of Scripture because it comes uh, at, the, at the conclusion uh, of the argument, if you would, the presentation of the, the truth that all of humanity falls short of the glory of God. All of humanity has sinned. And the Apostle Paul uh, uh, writes this, we have already made the charge, verse 9, that Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is not one righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on to describe the, the, the nature of the human being in, in, terms, Lord, in terms that indicate that there's nothing good in us. In verse 19, he concludes by saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable uh, to God. And whether a person realizes it or not, they're accountable to God. They're guilty before God. They have sinned against God. Now, if that's where Paul ended his his argument, if that's where he put a, a period and, and said, love Paul, we would all be discouraged. We would all close our Bibles and go home. We would all lose heart. But here's the, here's the amazing thing. God did something about our sin problem. Notice verse 21 says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God 
comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus Christ came into this world to save us from our sins. His death on the cross accomplished that. Jesus, the perfect man, offered himself as a sacrifice and as a substitute for your sin, for my sin, and for the sin of the world. And when anyone looks to Jesus by faith, acknowledging their personal sin and accepting Jesus as their Savior and Lord, Jesus forgives their sin. And notice that, that Paul says here in Romans 3 that this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, it's a matter of a response of faith that Jesus Christ died for you personally and individually and for your sins. And by virtue of that sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice, your sins are atoned for. They are covered. They are forgiven. They are removed. They are taken away from you. And that's what's, if you would, may I say, wrapped up in this statement that he will save his people from their sins. God actually imputes to you or puts to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that God sees the believer not in their sin but sees the sinner as forgiven and cleansed and clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. And let me say unequivocally that Jesus will forgive you of all your sins if you turn to him in faith. See, God's plan of salvation is fulfilled and accomplished by his own son, Jesus. In fact, uh, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Many years later, as the gospel was being proclaimed, the good news was being shared and being given out. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, uh, we have these words. And it's a, a recounting of the history of God's working through his people. And verse 22 says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. And it's going all the way back again to David, being a man after God's own heart, whom God chose and who God promised a son and a king and a kingdom to. And now look at verse 23. This is where, this is where uh, Paul picks up on this. From this man's offspring, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, that he promised. You see, when God makes a promise in his word, he makes good on it. And he made good on that with the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. He fulfilled it in that he sent to Israel and ultimately to the world Jesus whom he had promised. And notice where, where the, Paul ends up this uh, message. Verse 38, therefore, my brothers and sisters, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
Verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything that you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Some people think, well, I'll just do better. Uh, I'll just work at keeping the Ten Commandments. Well, the problem with that is that we're already individuals who've broken God's law and deserve his judgment. How many commandments does a person have to break to be a lawbreaker, to be a sinner? One. And if we're honest, we, and we look at the, even those ten, we say we've broken at least a couple of them, if in fact not all of them. In fact, our first parents were given how many commandments in the garden? One. Did they keep it? They did not. And their propensity for wanting to break God's law was passed on to you and to me and all of humanity so that we come into this world separated from God under a sentence of judgment. But lo and behold, God did something about that in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior, the Savior of the world. That's why John the Baptist at the public ministry of Jesus looked at him one day as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Christ died in our place for sinful humanity. He bore the punishment that should come to us, and he took it upon the cross, and he died in our place for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But you see, that gift that God offers in his Son is not automatically imputed and accounted to every human being. Jesus Christ must be received by faith in your individual heart and life. And this statement that um, the angel made calls for a response on your part uh, and in mine. And I would suggest to you that at this point, Joseph took this message to heart. He believed what God said. And then Matthew comments uh, on this, saying, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, when you and I come to, to realize Jesus for who he is, and we recognize our own need as sinful people, and and God, by his spirit, moves us to a place of putting our faith in Jesus Christ. We come to realize that he is no mere good teacher. He is no mere good prophet. He is, in fact, the Son of God who is Savior and Lord. And we come to realize that he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is no longer against us because of our sins. He's reached out to us in Jesus Christ. And when we receive him, he is now God with us. And the Bible would teach us as believing people that the Holy Spirit actually comes to indwell our very souls, our very lives. 
making Jesus Christ real in us and to us. And this term, Emmanuel, uh, is not so much a name, but a characterization. And when you have Jesus, you have God with you. Because Jesus is Savior, he is able to save us from our sins. And because he is Lord, he is God with us. I came across this uh, little devotional thought that I share with us this morning. I felt it fit in perfectly. I read it yesterday. It comes from Back to the Bible, uh, and it's an Advent devotional. It says, this name, referring to Emmanuel, teaches us many truths about God, his nature, and his commitment to us. It helps us see that God does not distance himself from his people. In the birth of Jesus Christ, God stepped into the world to provide us with all the benefits of his presence and his power. He came to be God with us. The writer goes on to say, what are the benefits of God's presence? Let's consider a few. Because he is with us, we have nothing to fear. Because he is with us, we are never alone. Because he is with us, we have a guide to lead us. Because he is with us, no situation is impossible or hopeless. Because he is with us, his help is always available. Because he is with us, we can rest securely in his care. Because he is with us, no enemy can defeat us. Because he is with us, he is our ever-vigilant protector. Because he is with us, we can resist temptation. And because he is with us, we always have someone who listens to us. And may I add, he responds to us as well, because God is good. In verses 24 and 25, we're told here that Joseph woke up, did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Matthew tells us that Joseph believed God and then obeyed his word. He married Mary. He didn't consummate the marriage until Mary had given birth to her firstborn, which was Jesus. Though not recorded for us in Scripture, Joseph along with Mary, raised Jesus. No doubt Joseph taught him the trade of being a carpenter. And I wonder if Joseph also had part in his understanding and training in the scriptures, teaching him how to pray, teaching him to read the word of God, taking him to the synagogue, having part in his life in training him and preparing him as his adoptive father. 
And Joseph becomes for you and for me, even in this brief encounter that we have in Scripture, an example of a godly man and a good father because he provided for Jesus and he also protected him and Mary from danger, as the Scripture later would indicate. And Joseph displayed his upright character in that he listened to God he believed what God said and then acted accordingly. In the words of Ephesians 6, 6, he did the will of God from the heart. So what does this say to you and to me? Well, first, let me say, is Jesus your Lord and your Savior? See, Jesus came into this world to bring life where there is death, light where there is darkness, freedom where there is bondage, joy where there is gloom, and hope where there is despair. And all of these areas of need that I've mentioned here, and maybe even many others, are inherent and, and internal in us, which require a transformation from within. And when you and I come to place our faith in Jesus Christ, he being the Savior, Jesus, gives you a new heart, a new life, an everlasting life. And in that, you and I are made right with God. Let me say, is Jesus the re your reason for celebrating this Christmas season? Is he the reason that you have joy because he has come to give you life and make you right with God? And that Christmas is more than just gifts, than tradition or a vague hope or notion of something better on the horizon with re no real assurance. Let me once again encourage us with the eyes of faith to see Jesus for who he is. May each of us trust him as Savior and follow him as Lord. And this Christmas season, knowing him in that personal and in that particular way, Celebrate him. Tell others the glad tidings of the gospel. As someone has said, this is the most wonderful time of the year. It's the greatest opportunity maybe to present Christ in a season where so many celebrate it but really don't know its meaning. May God help us to bear witness to Christ in these days. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that we have in Joseph, who in his human understanding and reasoning really didn't know what would be his next step or what would be the right thing ultimately to do, having heard the, the word from Mary that she was with child. But yet, Lord, you gave him wisdom from on high. You gave him direction. You gave him light. And Lord, you do the same in our lives if we truly are seeking you from the heart.
It is our prayer, Lord, that you will help us to continue to seek you, to continue to trust you, like Joseph, to have part in a plan that is bigger than ourselves, in a work that is greater than us. Not because there's anything in ourselves, Lord, that are worthy of such participation, but because, Lord, you've set your love upon us. So help us, Father, through the Holy Spirit, to be trusting Jesus and him alone for our salvation in our daily lives and for eternity to come. And Father, because of Jesus, may we truly rest in that hope that we have in him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 